to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations, and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl, and she works in a library, yeah. No my hide my Kyoto. Welcome to Books and Beyond. This is your host Alison and today Karen joins me again in the studio. Kyoto Karen. Kyoto Alison. So last week um, in the program that we did about train travel, we said that um, fiction set on trains was much more romantic than that set on planes. But then once we we're off the air, we suddenly realised that there is of course one author who has managed to romanticise air travel and that is Joan Didion. And um, we both happen to be Joan fangirls. So how did we not remember that last week? I don't know. I um, I think it might have just been we were so taken by the silver bullet trains that it completely blocked out the silver bird in the sky. Yeah. And um, yeah, the scene in particular, I think her maximum scene, um, although there's many um, references to air travel, but in particular is her description of that plane flight across the Pacific in her novel Democracy, which is set in the 70s, for those who haven't read it, at the end of the Vietnam War. And um, in this scene, a U.S. senator's wife, who has just walked out on her husband, and her CIA agent lover, as odd as that may sound, mm-hmm. um, are flying out of Honolulu together to look for her daughter, who's gone missing in Vietnam. And here's how it goes. For those of you who are new to Joan Didion, enjoy the Didion sentences. Which is how Jack Lovett and Inez Victor happened that Easter Sunday night in 1975 to take the Singapore Airlines flight that leaves Honolulu at 3.45 a.m. and at 9.40 a.m. one day later lands at Kai Tak, Hong Kong. Recently, when I took this flight, I thought of Inez, who described it as an 11-hour dawn. Inez said she never closed her eyes. Inez said she could still feel the cold of the window against her cheek. Inez said the 345 flight from Honolulu to Hong Kong was exactly the way she hoped dying would be. Dawn all the way. Mm, that's just beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, and it's really um, brings back memories for me because I, I remember as a child traveling on the Honolulu run down to Auckland on the, the DC-8 and the DC-10, that um, showing my age here, but um, because I was a, a flight engineer's daughter. Um, and I'll, um, my memories of it are wearing my best, best clothes ever and having to be on my absolute best behavior, but then having the chance to go up into the cockpit and see Dad and see the captain, and they don't. The captain might do something like um, tip their wings just to to show what it felt like. <laughs> their and wings not being the little pin on oh, their yes. jacket. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> not the wings you get pinned with. The wings but of the those, airplane. The big bird I wings. like the way yeah. you could see your flight engineer's daughter. They referred to the wings of the airplane as their wings. Their they wings. would tip their wings. <laughs> yes, yes. I'll always be a flight engineer's daughter. I'm sure. And then um, ha- handing out the lollies at the end, being allowed to do that. So I'm sure they were all breaches of health and safety laws um, back in the day. I think, don't airlines have their own laws? Are they? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But this, of course, was all pre-9-11. So um, it was a different era. 
But you do remember that um, when you're a little kid, the sleeping on the plane. Yeah, yeah, and the the, um, the drone of of the turbine engines, and yeah, and I'll always remember that that feeling of the cold um, window, the cabin window against my cheek and watching the, the endless dawn as well. Yeah, because there was in Honolulu, wasn't it? They yeah. were flying, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, that thing about remembering, I actually have a feeling that I um, have, my most vivid flight memory in some way encompasses my Joan Didion experience that I had already read this description. On a plane, among mm. other things, I read Democracy on an airplane. My sister had given it to me mm. <laughs> to read on a flight to Europe. But um, the most vivid experience I've ever had on an airplane is um, when I was flying from New Zealand to California to visit my mother, who was terminally ill at the time, and we had a stopover in Tahiti. So we arrived at night, and there was this incredibly long approach into Papeete over the lagoon, where the pilots cut out the engines completely, which was later explained to me that it's something to do with protecting the animal life in the lagoon. And we just kept skimming effortlessly, over the surface of this black water, of this still, totally still black water, reflecting back the moon at us. It was a moonlit night. And I remember thinking, it seemed to last forever. And I remember thinking that I hoped that my mother's death would be like that. Just oh. skimming this dark lagoon and then peacefully, and then finally tears. touching down. Oh, that brings a tear to my eye. And, yeah, that feeling of just gliding, gliding in. Yeah, yeah. Gliding the bird, the, the steel bird that yeah. also glides, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's wonderful, isn't it? And because um, all of all of this has, has given us a real desire to to Jones on on Joan today. In fact, I've been Jonesing all week for some Joan time. Yes, <laughs> yes. It did get us excited about Joan. Who had been thinking about Joan recently? That's right. Like Joan's always with us. Yeah, she is. Yeah. Oh. Well, I um. It's funny that it would be someone I was thinking in this course of this week, how funny it is that it would be someone who's known for being skeptical and grounded, if I may make a little (laughs) pun, um, rather than romantic, as Joan Didion is, who would be the one to romanticize air travel. But then I think Joan has always been surprising. Yeah, I I think so, yes. And while she definitely has a sentimental side, which in my memory comes out mostly in her writings on her California childhood, Mm -hmm. or possibly I'm attuned to them having had a childhood in California myself, um, she's more known for her um, cynicism, I think skepticism maybe, um, and a certain terseness, which she would probably attribute to her migrainous personality. Um, If anyone suffers from migraines, you have to read her essays on migraines. Um, I, I know that I'm not don't come across as terse necessarily although I suffer from migraines but when I'm having them I am terse and when she talks about people once upon a time not specifically her forebears crossing the mountains into California but at other times definitely as being people who displayed a certain toughness a kind of moral nerve she mm. could be talking about herself don't you yeah think? yeah no definitely and because she's she comes across as tough sometimes but also tender so there's that dichotomy, I guess, yeah. that she she displays, yeah, and because really Joan is is such an icon, isn't she? And um, and I guess like all icons, she just has hundreds of imitators. Um, well, they do say I can't remember. I think it was Megan Dom who pointed out. It was a great essayist, also who pointed out. Um, 
that um, all young women essayists, particularly if they're thin, what did mm. you say? Particularly if they're thin and something else, wear sunglasses or something. Yes, <laughs> um, will write like Joan in their earliest essays. I, I've got hundreds of blog posts and things where I've got a definite Joan um, tone, Joan tone. Yeah. And because uh, your Joan Tone, I guess we could call that Didion-esque. Yes, definitely, Didion-esque. But then, so that makes me think, um, what is it that qualifies a writer to have esque after their name? Joan being in the pantheon of those writers who do have the esque, like yes. the Kafka-esque, I suppose, would be the most famous. Yeah, um, and because I'm, I'm thinking even with the musicians who are also poets, the Springsteen-esque and Dylan-esque. There's so many of them. How does a writer become an adjective? Well, I think it could be... So one is um, if you're feeling like you're in a scene. So the Kafka-esque that I offered earlier would be it feels like I'm in a scene from a novel by Kafka. It's not referring to Kafka who worked in an insurance agency <laughs> and lived with his parents. It's referring to a scene in one of his novels. And that would be similar to another one could be Pinter-esque if you're like in a play by Harold Pinter. Um, but then I think the Joan, the Didion-esque applies more to the other thing which would be um, in the style of. So that's like a Hemingway-esque. Um, a, people who are identi- authors who are identified as much with their style, their lifestyle. Or, no, no, sorry, not lifestyle. The style with which they live their lives, which is ah, very different. different yes. um, so is that like a sophistication... In the case of Joan, yeah, not Hemingway. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so I'm getting back to Joan. Sophisticated. Um, yeah, sophisticated, uh, cool, mm. collected, uh, migrainous. Um, and I, I had thought cynical, but then you were thinking perhaps more sceptical. Yeah. Better. I think the thing about when I say collected, the thing about Joan Didion is that she's always very careful not to go for extremes. She, she's skeptical about going for extremes. So rather than being purely cynical, she'll just put something out there to plant the doubt. I remember in particular the um, essays that she wrote on the New York jogger case. This was a jogger with the five black um, young men, teenagers, were put in prison for, were convicted of having raped her in Central Park and it wasn't them at all. And Joan Didion was one of the few um, authors, one of the few journalists in America to have noted in her articles on the case that there was no physical evidence tying these boys to the case. She was always very careful to, uh, it was an intellectual rigor. There was no hedging, no convenience, no making your piece arrive at the ending that you wanted it to have. It really intelligent writing, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Not to say she couldn't be sarcastic at times. Yeah, and quite biting. Too, oh, definitely, yeah. More yeah. than, yeah. yeah. A, a bit cryptic. Cryptic, yep. And um, that real dry wit, too. Oh, definitely. Humor, that. yes. Humor and wit. And also um, the sharp eye. Yes, yeah. Which at times has been called surgical. Surgical, yes, the surgical eye. And, um, of course, we you alluded to the like, the style in which she lived her life. I noticed so. you picked that up. Yes, <laughs> you started to I say lifestyle. lifestyle. <laughs> I'll change it. But um, I 
can't forget those pictures of her in her big sunglasses standing by the Corvette. Right. That she drove. Yeah. Um, there's, there's a Celine ad, too, where she's wearing her big, um, is it a Celine ad and she's wearing Dior sunglasses or a Celine sunglasses and a Dior ad? I'm not yeah. up on my brands, but that's a famous one that I, um, it definitely captures that zone, uh, the, the zone of Joan. Yeah, the Joan zone. She does have a great name, doesn't she? Oh, yes. Um, so, and also, um, the driving a Corvette, like as you just said, the why, you know, of all the cars, a Corvette. Yeah. That's so cool. Absolutely. And, you know, um, even the the photos of her smoking, um, even though... All the photos of her, oh, yeah, I believe. Yeah, all, yes. <laughs> Often um, with a gin glass in the other yes, hand. Yes, a drink and a, a cigarette, which is totally not cool anymore. Um, so don't try this at home. But even they look, they still look cool when you see those those photos. Yeah, absolutely. So iconic, aren't they? Yeah. Um, I think there's something also about the... Um, the the coolness of Joan that is related to this the that has an effect on the way she shares information that makes it such a Joan way of sharing information, which is these sort of tossed off comments. You can see with someone waving a cigarette in their hand mm-hmm. as they speak. Um, in interviews, she's admitted to polishing her writing for hours. This actually comes out in a discussion of being whether or not she's a migrainous personality, and she talks about being a perfectionist. But when you read them, they're just um, two or three idiosyncratic details which she puts out there for you, and then you have to put them together to make make the picture for of, of what your uh, how you absorb it it's yeah. your personal picture yeah and um do you notice how she inserts herself into the narratives yes yeah, part of that them? being personal yeah, yeah exactly so i guess um is that where the personal essay comes from yeah she's always got this dialogue where she's saying things like um you will have perceived both in her novels and her essays you will have perceived by now that or let me go further i did not know why i did or did not do anything at all um that's one of my favorites that's so joan um it's another one that imitators will often do which is that give you the choice you know it's a or b and i'm not going to tell you which and and you can choose and you can choose um what does that suggest you tell me that's i think that's in democracy where she says what do what does this suggest um oh yeah it is about ines running off with jack and she says it's very 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 biting because she points out that when ines got on the 11 hour plane dawn plane Mm -hmm. flight she actually had a ticket and so what does that tell us you tell me and so her books almost they become a dialogue don't they yeah they're they're very yeah it's you and the reader she and the reader um i suppose yeah what were you saying about the personal did you say personal essay did you mention that um yeah i wonder before joan were they called personal essays she might actually be the inventor of the personal essay i didn't study up on that no well maybe we're right um uh, uh you, and you heard it here first, mm. I guess, which is, is great. Um, so, Joan, you know, jo- the Joan Zone, it's too big really to fit into a 30-minute show. So, we had thought that what we could do is, um, for the next part of the show, to play the Didion Genius sentence, sentence game. Um, uh, so, this is to show off Joan's loaded yeah, sentences. Yeah, the loaded, yes. And because we, we think... 
she may have invented the the loaded sentence. Yeah, I I have a feeling. Um, I'm going to say the real inventor would be Emily Dickinson. Oh, yes, <laughs> I'm going to allow myself. Who yeah. said you know referred to her life as a loaded gun? Oh. Emily Dickinson had very loaded sentences, but they were also it was poetry, so it's a different thing. Um, all poets actually have loaded sentences, but I think in the terms of bringing that into the essay and the novel, absolutely, Joan was a master. So virtuosity is another thing. Oh we yes. Put out there. So um, if for a loaded sentence, I've actually picked, so we've each picked a couple of examples. So my possibly my favorite is from um, a journalistic piece that she wrote called Lifestyles in the Golden Land, the Golden Land being California. And the sentence is, a coronet of seed pearls held her illusion veil. And now I'm going to explain to you why that's loaded. You might go, what's loaded about that, Karen? So um, this is actually a piece, a line that I've chosen to celebrate Didion's signature, light but steely irony. Um, so this piece of journalism was inspired by a true crime article in the news, um, but takes us somewhere else altogether into social commentary, a bit of Dostoevsky, depravity and the heart of man. And it's the story of a murder in the San Bernardino Valley in Southern California, which is a very ominous place, a desert, hostile sort of place settled by religious fundamentalists. And it's a James M. Cain type story, as Didion tells mm. us. Um, so Lucille murders her boring Seventh-day Adventist dentist husband to get his life insurance money and start a new life with the suave lawyer she's having an affair with. There's also definitely a bit of Madame Bovary here. Yes. Whose wife had conveniently also recently died on a night that Lucille had been visiting. So the suave lawyer throws Lucille under the bus when she gets arrested. The true depravity being, and I think Joan makes this quite clear, being not in the heart of the murderer but in the heart of the man who led her along and profited by it until it got out of control. And um, so then she's found guilty and gets sent off to prison. He marries his child, his children's Swedish nanny, who at the wedding wears a long white silk dress and a coronet of seed pearls held her illusion veil. Mm. Isn't that so well done? Loaded. It's it's very loaded. Isn't but you it? can see she's also done her research. I wouldn't have even known there's a kind of veil called an illusion veil. Would you? No. I, and when I'd read that, I was trying to think of old wedding photos. Um, and I was thinking, what is an illusion? But then the veil is an illusion too, isn't it? But it's so loaded, isn't it? I, I just, I really do love that. So let's hear yours. Well, my one is um, uh, from her essay on morality, which was written in 1965. Um, and I'm not sure if this is one sentence or two. Oh, no, I think it is one because I've broken some of the rules here. I do apologise for that. So this one... It goes like this. For better or worse, we are what we learned as children. My own childhood was illuminated by graphic litanies of the grief awaiting those who failed in their loyalties to each other. Mm. Gee, I related to that. It, you know, all of those cautionary, cautionary tales that we were brought up with and which somehow then shape your own morality. Yeah, did you find that 
that sort of resonated with you? Yeah, she well, um, she has this great part. So the part that really resonated with me is, I think it's, isn't it in Morality? She talks about the Donner Party. Oh, yes. How they, um, the Donner yes. Party being the pioneers who left, who got um, lost and got back on the trail and then ended up a little too late in the season trying to cross the mountains into California and um, getting trapped by the snow in the mountains with not enough food and ended up having to um, eat their dead, mm. but that they kept a morality, which was you never ate your, your relatives, own your own blood, blood relatives. Came. Yes. Yeah. Gee, that's that's really loaded and, and graphic too, isn't it? You've um, got another posted there. Is that, yeah. Was that another sentence And then I was the going to do another one as well. No, you had another sentence from the same paragraph, from Did the I? same essay. Yeah, it's from the, oh, the right, same right, essay. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, it's just over the, over the page. So um, now, where are we? Oh, okay. Now, this is also... on morality I like this one you see I want to be quite obstinate about insisting that we have no way of knowing beyond that fundamental loyalty to the social code of what is right and what is wrong what is good and what is evil I dwell so upon this because the most disturbing aspect of morality seems to be the frequency with which the word now appears in the press, on television, in the most perfunctory kinds of conversation. And doesn't that apply to today? And, you know, this was written in 1965. Yeah. yeah. Boy, I, yeah. I sometimes, you know, rereading Didion in preparation for this show, I did see at times a why she was so perfect for the 60s, and which is when she, you know, wrote the most... Um, Iconic, let's say. Mm. I hate that word, yeah, but no, um, of of her pieces, because it was a time where there was an overload of idealism and of rage, and so her very collected, uh, skeptical way of reporting on this was a great balance to that. Whereas now, in this time of neoliberalism, calculation, incremental change, we feel we really do need idealism and rage, and so I think there's a different kind of writing happening now, which is really. Um, a of our times, which is the book like the one I'm reading now, Good and Mad by Rebecca Traister. Oh. It's hard to picture Joan Dinian writing a book called Good and Mad, isn't it? It is. Also because her parents probably would have told her that you don't say mad, you say angry the way my parents used to say to me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, back to Joan's loaded sentences. So I've got another one um, that I love, which is from an essay of hers called On Keeping a Notebook. And this one is... I think we are well advised to keep on nodding terms with the people we used to be, whether we find them attractive company or not. Mm. And I really like this for the Didion-esque use of or not, you know, that same Didion thing of giving you the two alternatives. But um, anyway, this is an essay. I also like it because it's an essay on compulsion, which is a compulsion which I share, which is the compulsion to write things down. And she describes it as is a compulsion which is inexplicable to those who do not share it, useful only accidentally, only secondarily, in the way that any compulsion tries to justify itself. But she makes it clear that it's not about having a factual record of what she's been doing. It's not a diary. She said she's always failed at diaries, same way I've always failed at diaries. <laughs> <laughs> Do you keep a diary? Else? No, I failed. Yeah, I've, I've we all failed. Fail. Um, but she says, she says, yeah, it's not a, a record of what she's been doing or thinking. And then she calls it, she says, that would be an impulse for reality, which I sometimes envy, but do not possess. But instead, she says, what she, what she scribbles down are what some people would call lies, which is, um, well, maybe it didn't happen that way, but that's how it felt to me. Mm. 
Um, and so she's got this wonderful, I, you know, you've, you've led the way by putting two sentences oh, in yes. your, so <laughs> I'm going to add another sentence. I was hard, hard put to choose between the two sentences I loved in keeping a notebook. So one of the things when she talks about looking back at her notebook and she sees a recipe for sauerkraut in her notebook. And then she says, this is actually how the essay ends. I was on Fire Island when I first made that sauerkraut, and it was raining, and we drank a lot of bourbon and ate the sauerkraut and went to bed, and I listened to the rain and the Atlantic. It felt safe. I made the sauerkraut again last night, and it did not make me feel any safer, but that is, as they say, another story. Mm. Very, Didion. Yes, it is. Another story. That's another story. Yeah. So maybe it was the bourbon or the sound of the Atlantic that made Phil safe. Who knows? Or the person she was with. Yes. She doesn't mention. She also leaves things out, which is a very Didion-esque thing. Yes. Yeah. Oh, gee, she's so good, isn't she? Um, so I guess I could, um, or speaking of breaking the rules, I've, my next sentence, it's actually three sentences. Go so for it. I'm oh. not sure that I'm allowed to do this. But oh, no, 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 no. We've, we've, we've made our way there. <laughs> yes. My morality says that I can do three sentences. And this one is about uh, self-respect from an essay of hers also, oh, 1961. One of her most famous essays, an essay. That's right. So um, where is she? So self-respect is a discipline, etc. So it was once suggested to me that as an antidote to crying, I put my head in a paper bag. As it happens, there is a sound physiological reason for this, something to do with oxygen and uh, for doing exactly that. But the psychological effect alone is incalculable. It is difficult in the extreme to continue fancying oneself as Kathy in Wuthering Heights with one's head in a food fair bag. It just makes me kind of, you know, laugh and cry. Yeah. At the same time, it's that, yeah, once yeah. again, the, the dichotomy. The, you know, imagine, well, we've probably all been told this. Oh, dear, you're upset. Just put your head in a paper bag. I've never been told that. <laughs> but, um, but I think I would guess, my guess would be is the incongruity of it. Is it a, or is there, there is, no, she says there's a sound scientific. Yes. You're a chemist, what's the sound yes. scientific reason? Oh, it's all to do with acid and, and base. So you've got to try and get the pH. More carbon dioxide. Yeah, um, well, less, I think. But, um, oh, don't judge my chemistry. Um, but, it, yeah, it's to do with the pH. Um but so definitely very sound reasoning, but it just something about it doesn't fit, does it? And so, um, in that's the one where she also has that wonderful line about lying down in bed that we eventually lie down alone in that notoriously uncomfortable bed, the one we make ourselves. Mm. And um, hang on, I've got it here. Um, whether or not we sleep in it depends, of course, on whether or not we respect ourselves. Oh. It's wonderful, isn't it? The, that whole self-respect. Yeah, I yeah. think that's something that could be assigned in school. The, that um, that essay, and it's also yes. it's very Joan because it's got that thing where she says, um, "In brief, people with I'm just looking at it here. In brief, people with self-respect exhibit a certain toughness, a kind of moral nerve. They display, excuse me, they display what was once called character, a quality which, although approved in the abstract, sometimes loses ground to other more 
instantly negotiable virtues. Now, that's definitely a thing of our time. Yes. Oh, this essay, it's wonderful, isn't it? I think it should be required reading. So if everyone. people, let's remember to tell everybody, mm-hmm. well, why don't I just tell them right now? Yeah. That um, if you want to see all of Joan Didion's essays together and her journalism, there's a wonderful collection, which is called, uh, a wonderful quote from Joan Didion, We Tell Ourselves Stories in Order to Live, put out by Everyman's Library. Yeah, and um, we do, don't we? We tell ourselves story, and we have a narrative about our our lives. That's right. Yeah, it's um, oh gee, I've enjoyed Joan being in the Joan zone. Today. Yeah, yeah. So we can get people to send us messages um, on what what other authors they would like us to fangirl about. Yes, yeah. So yeah, how would they do that? They would comment on the Auckland Library's blog. Yeah, so they could contact us. Um, via our, our blog which is on the the Auckland Libraries website um aucklandlibraries.govt.nz I guess they could always contact us here through Planet FM too uh, Planet Audio but if they go on the blog they'll see the list of all the books that we've talked yes, about yes that's right so um yeah, and look, we'd love to get some suggestions about who to, who to fangirl next. Might even be an author we've never read. We'd have to suddenly, yeah, we'd we, have a week to <laughs> to do some <laughs> to hit the decks. Some pretty um, full on research, but we'd be happy to do that, wouldn't we? Yeah. So um, this has been a great a great effort. I would say. Um, but I was just going to say that rugby was the winner on the day, which I guess it kind of has been this week. You've lost me completely. Who won what in rugby? What did I not know? It was a game of two halves, as they say. But rugby rugby was the winner in the end. So that's just a a nod to the week's um, triumphs and and tragedies on the field. Um, So perhaps on that note, I should say farewell. Um, Until next week, happy reading. And, and try some Joan Didion. Yes, if yes. you haven't already. I'm going to keep Joaning, I think, for a day or so. So, um, harera, harera, and kakite ano. to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day, every day, every day, every day.